turn to Matthew chapter 16. It's been a couple weeks since we were last in Matthew. If you recall, we heard Peter make that confession for all the disciples, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then not a moment or so later, we also heard Peter rebuking the Lord, telling him, not you, Lord, you won't have to go to Jerusalem and be rejected and suffer and die. Uh, So quite a turnaround in just the space of a little bit. Well, tonight we come to Matthew 16, verse 24 through 28, and it really is a continuance of that passage we last visited. Let us pray again upon the reading of God's word. Our gracious God, we do ask now that it would please you to help us in our hearing as your word is now read and preached. Lord, we are confessing how helpless we are unless it pleases you by the mediation of Jesus Christ and his merits to come and help us and give us that which belongs to us in Christ, ears to hear. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, open our minds, grant us understanding, grant us persuasion, grant us believing, grant us doing, reform us in every way as we sit under your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would be honored and glorified by that fruit which issues from our having received your ministry among us. We pray for this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and God. Amen. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. One of the strong temptations you will face throughout your entire life is the temptation to be approved by men. Do you know this temptation? The temptation to be a people pleaser, to be like the crowd, to go along, to get along, The temptation to live as other men live, possess the things other men possess, want the things other men want. The approval of other men is a powerful force, like a 900-pound gorilla leaning on an inside door in your house. It's a powerful force that presses on the heart of each one of us. The biblical category for this hunger for the approval of others is simply called the fear of man. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 29, 25. The snares are about, all over. 
We are fearing man whenever we set aside the truth so we can be accepted, liked, or promoted in the world. A couple weeks back, we heard, that we heard Peter confess with his mouth a glorious eternal truth. Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Verse 15 of this, cha- of this same chapter. Peter, speaking first, speaking for all, declared, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter confessed something contrary to the world. Herod the Tetrarch did not believe Jesus to be the Christ. The large crowds of Palestine did not believe Jesus to be the Christ. So Peter and the disciples were separating themselves from the conventional wisdom when they made this confession. By God's grace, the Father in heaven had revealed the most sublime truth to them, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary and Joseph, is the Messiah of God. But almost as soon as the confession was on his lips, the temptation to cast it aside was in Peter's heart. That temptation would become unbearable. On the night Christ was arrested, bold and believing Peter would deny he ever knew Jesus. On that night, he would deny knowing Jesus three different times to three different people. You can read about it in John 18. At the heart of Peter's denials was a heart like yours and mine, a believing heart, yes, but a weak heart that can be swamped by the pressure to take sides with the world against Jesus Christ. The pressure sounds like this. Do you really believe Jesus is the only way of salvation? Do you really think good people who do good works to get into heaven will be rejected by Jesus? Do you really think Jesus is coming again with wrath and judgment? Do you really think Jesus, the Jesus written of in the New Testament, is the full and final revelation of God? These are all questions to pressure the heart of believers to get us to deny that which we have previously confessed. Why are our hearts weak before this pressure? Because by what we can see with our eyes, Jesus appears to be weak and without glory. That's why. And the world appears to be strong and in possession of all the glory. When the world appears to be winning, when the world appears to be right, when the world appears to be on top and in charge and setting the pace and the terms, that's when it is most difficult for us to hold fast our confession that Jesus is the Christ. There was a taste of glory in Peter's first confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There should be a taste of glory in that. This is the long-awaited Messiah. But when Jesus started talking right after that about rejection and suffering and death in Jerusalem, and mind you, rejection by the leaders of Israel, not the Romans, but the leaders of Israel, when Jesus said that's what's going to happen to the Christ, to the Son of the living God, when he started talking about that, Peter could not see the glory anymore. It had been eclipsed. A cold shadow had fallen upon Peter's face. Peter was offended that Christ would not match the world glory for glory and win. 
If the Messiah can be killed, if he is without political glory, without military glory, without cultural glory, without social glory, without all these familiar kinds of earthly glory, if he is without them, then what kind of Messiah is he? Peter was again sinking and needed help, but he was on dry land. That help comes right away from the Lord in tonight's passage. Right away, as Peter is offended, the Lord reaches out as if they were standing on a sea (laughs) and grabs him with the word. Jesus knows how weak the hearts of his followers are. So in these words, in this short passage, he comes to strengthen our hearts against the pressures of the fear of man. First, he tells us he is not without glory. Second, he tells us the only way to share in his glory is to share in his sufferings. Third, he tells us quite sternly to stop fearing man, or I'll give you something to fear. Now, he doesn't mean to sound like a bad dad. He's not. But he says, stop fearing man, because there is something greater to fear. He tells us that so that we would not be fooled by the rattling sabers of mortals. When you see what he's going to do, the rattling sabers of mortals sounds like mice with toothpicks. Not a thing to fear. Unless he's reap cheap. That's a bonus for those of you who read Narnia. Now, if we believe and if we do what the Lord tells us in this passage... Our hearts will be strengthened against the lie that the world is strong and Christ is weak. Yes, Peter was swamped by that lie, but he did not drown. The Lord Jesus had built up his faith and interceded to keep him in the faith. And this is exactly what the Lord is doing for you tonight, if, we, if you have ears to hear it. So here it comes. The first thing Jesus tells us is that he is not without glory. But he does not receive his glory the way worldly nations and worldly men receive glory. He does not receive his glory by aggression or self-assertion or by popular acclamation or by marketing. He receives his glory through weakness and self-sacrifice. Look at the key words of verse 21. He must go to Jerusalem, must suffer many things, must be killed, and on the third day must be raised. Jesus is saying to his disciples, and Peter kind of stopped hearing. (laughs) He didn't get quite to the end. Jesus is saying to his disciples in verse 21, I am the glorious one you have heard about and have hoped for. Yes, that's me. But my glory comes after a cross. Hebrews 2.9 says it quite clearly. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2.9. Why does Jesus receive, only receive his glory and honor after going to the cross? Because it is in his cross work, his death, 
that he accomplishes his greatest victory as divine ruler. In his cross work, Jesus reconciles rebellious, sinful men to God. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Without his cross work, the victory of Christ would have been a victory of judgment and destruction and subtraction. Now, that would have been glorious, but his victory at the cross is more glorious. For it is a victory of reconciliation and multiplication. Through his own sacrifice, he multiplies the number of sons in his father's house. And because of this, he receives as the God-man an everlasting and glorious kingdom filled with adoring and faithful servants who bear his likeness. How does this strengthen our hearts against the fear of man? Here's how. You and I have been made to hunger for glory. We hunger to be on the right side of things, the winning side. This is why Peter was offended. We hunger to be approved by those in charge. Well, we will either chase after man to give us this glory, or we will receive it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus wants you to know that his is the true glory. The glory of the world looks big, but it is passing away. The glory of Christ looks faded, but he has been raised on the third day. His glory is everlasting. Now, if we are going to confess, as Peter did, as Christians do, if we are going to confess that the glory of Christ is the glory of the cross, then we ourselves must live under a cross. Look what Jesus says in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, that is, if anyone would go with me into the resurrection glory I am going into first, <laughs> let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying that if you truly confess him to be the Christ of God, you will make a break with the world and enter his school of sufferings. You won't stay in the world and try to have the glory of the world and the glory of the cross simultaneously. You cannot have two masters. You cannot love two ultimates. His sufferings are the sufferings of being in the world but being rejected by the world. He called the world to repentance. They rejected him for that. He told the world there is no lasting glory outside himself. They rejected him for that. If you confess him, if you confess him, you must enter upon the same road of rejection, he is saying, that he is the pioneer entrant upon. Because the world rejects all who stop seeking its approval and glory. Let's break verse 24 down a little further. Jesus says you must deny yourself, and then he says you must take up your cross. What do these requirements mean? 
Well, sometimes we get this teaching wrong. Sometimes we think to deny self is a list of things like stop eating two scoops of ice cream. Stop watching too much television. Stop staying up too late. Stop saying the first thing that comes into your head. Now, some of you should stop that. All of it. But that's not what self-denial is. Jesus doesn't mean put the ice cream away. To deny self is not to make my own list of difficulties and start doing them. Now, it is true. We all have some things we could be doing better or some things we should stop doing. These might be matters of personal hygiene, personal finances, personal habits. If you think I'm speaking to you, call me this week. Let's have lunch. (laughs) But if this is all you think denial of self is, you may not be denying self at all, as Jesus means it. A list of my own making keeps me in charge, doesn't it? What Jesus is calling for here is an end to my being an authority over my own life. Just as you would deny that Vladimir Putin has authority over you, you should also deny that you have authority over you. The word for deny here is the same word Jesus will use later when he warns Peter, you will deny me three times. Matthew 26, 34. To deny self, then, is to disassociate oneself from one's own interests. Now, people might take you to a doctor for doing this, but this is what is required. If you are united with another, Jesus Christ, disassociate oneself from one's own interests. You are now willing to let your life be used up for Jesus Christ. If your thoughts, your ambitions, your values are ruling your life, then Christ is not ruler of your life. You cannot follow Jesus and follow you at the same time. A man cannot have two masters. This does not mean to exclude the truth and reality of Peter's life and mine and yours, that we are weak. But beloved, this reveals to your soul what Jesus will always be doing with you. If he is shepherding you in the bond of redemption, he will always be shepherding you deeper into self-denial. It will be just like we read tonight on on petition six about the temptation. If you have fallen in matters of self-denial, he's always getting you back up and saying, nope, nope, don't lay down here. Let's keep going. And he gives you grace and takes you further in. Now, the Lord says, take up your cross. Now, we sometimes get this wrong, too. Taking up your cross is not the same as putting up with a difficult coworker. It's not the same as putting up with a difficult family member. It's not putting up with a difficult life situation, like higher property taxes, I'm kind of weary about that putting up. It's not even putting up with a chronic illness, necessarily. The Jewish ears that first heard Jesus say, take up your cross, 
would have immediately thought about all the times they saw men carrying a wooden beam on their back out to the place of death where the Romans had a special skill they learned from the Persians of rejecting a man utterly from the race of men. They crucified him, which means they put his body up off the earth so he wasn't touching any part of the earth where other good people lived. Everybody would have thought of that when they heard Jesus say this. Take up your executioner's chair, is what he's saying. No hope of finding glory in this world is the man who's carrying his cross now. Rejected by the world is the man who's carrying his cross now. Not even looking to overcome the world's rejection is the man who voluntarily takes up his cross and follows the man, Jesus Christ, who voluntarily took up his cross. Praise God that the same will that is in Christ to do that which the Father called him to do is in measure in you by the Spirit. Jesus is calling us to live the same way, to live daily as men and women who expect nothing from the world, to live as men and women whose hope of glory is the world to come. And when that is our strong hope, we actually bear difficulties of life with much more grace and love because we don't need all the difficulties to be cured so we can get what we really want, some earthly glory. This, this literally comes right down to death. Jesus is saying, be ready to die for me. And that becomes more clear in a moment. Verse 25, our Lord summarizes the whole matter. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we try to save our life in this world, if we try to avoid the rejection of the world by cutting deals with people who are ashamed of Jesus, if we try to seek the approval of people who are ashamed of Christ's rule, ashamed of his commands, ashamed of his call to repentance and faith, if we pursue life away from his cross, he says we will end up with no life at all. We will lose it. Judgment will fall upon us everlastingly. All our efforts to save ourselves by the world's help and the world's power leads to ruin, our Lord is saying. But if we see the suffering Christ of God as worth more than our life in this world, then we will be willing to lose our life for his sake. Are you willing to die quite literally, physically, for Jesus Christ? He's calling you to be willing, even if it never comes to your doorstep. For those who are so willing, even should it never come to their doorstep, they are dying of many other things in this world while they yet live. All of this is so incredibly reasonable, right? So believably reasonable to translate. Because Jesus Christ has been raised on the, day, on the third day. 
Jesus Christ holds in his hand for eternity the glory of multiplication and reconciliation to God. Jesus Christ cannot be put to death anymore. He can only live. This is true glory. All of this, of course, is beyond reasonable for those who have perceived in Christ the salvation of God. So, if we see the suffering Christ of God as worth more than our life in this world, we will be willing to lose our life for his sake. Now, in verse 26, Jesus asks a profoundly simple question. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, this question, as you can tell, has a bit of an imaginative edge to it. There are no men who gain the whole world, no matter what they say to you. (laughs) They don't have it. But this has an an imaginative edge because the Lord wants us to contemplate a situation where someone has gained the whole world. The answer to the question is, of course, nothing. It profits that man nothing to gain the whole world and then lose his soul. If a man gains all the glory this world has to offer, whether it be wealth, reputation, acceptance, fame, but he has no life with which to enjoy it, he has made a fool's bargain. He's like a man eager to make money who goes and sells his services to 10 companies. He comes home and counts up the value of all the contracts he has signed that day. They total in the millions and millions of dollars. He is thrilled, but only later he realizes what only a fool would have failed to miss. He is now contracted to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 1,000 years. He has no life to enjoy his wealth. Also, in verse 26, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, the second question of the verse is almost a proverbial statement more than it is a question. It is a way of saying a man has nothing of greater value in his own possession than his soul. If he does not choose to keep his soul because he has chosen other things, he will still have nothing of value enough that he can trade in to get his soul back. Only losing one's life for Christ is a way of keeping one's soul. And this is the seed of saving faith. The seed of saving faith for that time that we first lay hold of Christ. That seed of saving faith already comes in its, with its DNA all that we will need to become steadfast and enduring in a life-losing pursuit of Jesus for the rest of our life. That seed will grow and grow and grow, for it is the very seed of Christ in us who did not love the world or the things of the world. So this is what Jesus is saying about worldly glory. The the approval of men, the esteem of men, if we try to chase that kind of glory instead of Christ's glory, we will be judged by the Lord himself. And this brings us to the final verses, 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come 
with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Notice what our Lord is doing by adding these words to the hearts and minds of his disciples. He is first and foremost saying, do not judge of Christ's kingdom by present appearances. Learn to judge of my kingdom by that which you shall see when I come. John Calvin, helpful comment. If we would perceive the worthlessness of this fading life, we must be deeply affected by the view of the heavenly life. Christ is speaking to deeply affect us with a view of the heavenly life. That it is Jesus Christ, Jesus born of Mary, Jesus crucified and risen, this Jesus who is coming at the end to judge all men in glory with his entourage, host of angels. You shall see it. So in this verse 27, Christ is summoning believers through his word to his judgment seat to lead them to reflect at all times that they lived for no other object than to long for that day when their redemption would become sight. Beloved, you must have this perception to endure in the losses required of you to follow Christ. You must have a perception of that day of judgment where your redemption is on full and grand display when you are openly acquitted and acknowledged before the angels of God that you little folk of God, you who were rejected in the world, are the beloved of the eternal God and judge and Savior. Our Lord also says what he says there in verse 27, so that we would be excited and hungry for the benefits of doing what is right. And what is the doing of right? Loyalty unto death. Faithfulness to Christ unto death. Calvin again, if we would perceive the worthlessness of this fading life, we must be deeply affected by the view of the heavenly life. I read that a moment ago. This is what our Lord is doing in these final two verses. Now, it is a fair question and a necessary one. To what time is the Lord referring when he says that he is coming again? For in verse 27, it sounds very much like he's referring to the time of the final judgment. Because then he will repay each person according to what he has done. But then in verse 28, it sounds like he's referring to a time different than the final judgment. For he says, there are some of you here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's not an easy knot to untie. So go easy on me. 
But I am going to indeed set before you my conviction according to the word of God. The Lord is actually referring to two comings of himself as enthroned king. And these are consolidated into one coming in the book of Daniel chapter 7. Where in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet has a vision of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom that will never fade away, whose dominion will be forever and ever. And that description in Daniel 7 of, this, of one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to receive a kingdom is a description of Christ after his resurrection and after his ascension when he goes into the heavens and is seated on his throne and begins his reign in our glorified nature. And all his works then upon the earth from that point forward, are the coming of his kingdom. And so what he does at the Mount of Transfiguration is the coming of his kingdom in prospect. But his kingdom doesn't come upon his enthronement until the resurrection, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and the plundering of the nations that goes on even to this hour. So there is a precedent, and I don't want to do a deep study with you tonight. There is precedent for this telescoping type language in the prophets of God. Verse 27 is a reference to the final judgment. Verse 28, a reference to the resurrection and the ascension. But the main point that I want you to take away, and I really am trying to reduce this to the most simple point of verse 27 and 28, is that we who will lose our lives for his sake must have a perception that only our faith can enjoy and benefit from. And that perception is a perception of his glory. Because the temptation to fear men is a battle for glory in the heart of the child of God. We see everything that men are doing on the earth. We see their rejection, their ridicule, their persecution. And sometimes we see it even where it's not. (laughs) Different sermon. But we see that the church of Jesus Christ is not thriving and being honored in all of the alleys of power in this world. So our Lord knows that we are tempted to look for glory in what we see. And so in these words of 27 and 28, he subdues us by a word. Isn't that, isn't that how he subdued us to salvation and faith of the gospel? By a word of promise, your sins are forgiven. Here again, he's subduing us by a word, curing and clearing our perception that he is coming in glory. This should give us great excitement and great hunger for that day and great resolve to live under a cross while here below, to not order our lives so that we always have a crown before men. A cross is okay because the first man who bore that cross 
now wears the crown. And so shall we. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight to us, the challenge that it is and the help that it is. It keeps our hands off of a tinkering with the kingdom of Jesus Christ to make it more covered in an earthly glory. It was at its most glorious when Christ was defeating his enemies and ours, nailing our sins and the debts against us to the cross with his own body, breaking the dominion of sin, breaking, destroying the works of the devil, casting down all that was against us, meeting all the demands of the law for us, vacating all the penalties of the law upon us. Oh, no wonder the cross is called the wisdom and the power of God. How glorious it is. And Lord, we thank you that it is the doorway to eternal glory by which you raised up your son, and so shall we follow. We do ask that you, by your spirit, would give us clear perception of that final day when all things are set to rights. Even help us properly yearn for the reward, for therefore it is set before us in these words that we would long for rewards, rewards of remaining loyal unto death. Help us not be ashamed of dying for the name of Jesus Christ. And help us not be ashamed of living in that peculiar way that we are called to live under a cross in self-denial. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.